The morning before us is a delightful pleasure from almost any perspective, isn't it? The opportunity that's ours to come together, to assemble, and to realize a power far greater than any of us is the one to whom we direct our worship. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The famous words of Jesus Himself in Matthew 4, verse number 10. It is good that each of us are here today. We're thankful for not only our membership, but our visitors alike. It's our trust that each of us, by virtue of being in a place like this one, for the purpose we're here, we can set our week off on the best possible way of beginning today. You may have noticed in the title of the lesson, Evaluation by Jesus, and that's on the wall to my left and right. And for the next few moments, we'll revisit a rather interesting text in Revelation 3. But we'll build up to that, quite frankly, with a few additional passages over the course of the next few moments. This next slide is an introductory one, and I hope that it'll at least put before all of us the features of such a critical topic that I would like to share with you today. Jesus shares with us much about self-evaluation. Isn't it true that one of the most damning, one of the most fatal, one of the most hurtful things that any of us could be guilty of is self-deception? That is to say, and you'll notice I've even defined it for your consideration, self-deception is this. It is the act of making oneself believe what is not true. Consider that with me. That consideration, that conduct, whereby a person causes himself to believe what is not true. Self-deception. The Bible has a great deal to say about it, and it warns all of us about it. Isn't it true that there are so many things that maybe in the world around us, others do it, and maybe we somehow rationalize it, and we come to believe, well, maybe it's not all so bad. Maybe it's all right. Self-deception. Let's study at least a part of what God's Word has to say about it, and before we're done, we will visit with care a part of the book of Revelation. As we close that slide, though, might I invite you to note this. The thing that I want each of us to leave with today, having learned maybe among other things, this is the most important. What is important is to evaluate the way Jesus does. Not to be dependent on your perception or my opinion or someone else's speculation, but how does the Lord see it? And how does He see me? And how does He see you? Evaluation by Jesus. Let's begin like this. Our procession will be, first of all, a study of a number of instances in the Bible that remind us how that this can happen. I suppose it has been a part of the human lot since nearly the beginning of time when individuals would be deceived and they would cause themselves to believe what's not true. Why don't we begin by noting this? Some of these warnings read like this, and perhaps you're so familiar with them because they're resounding in their thrust. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now the Lord thought that was so important, it's repeated verbatim. First of all in Proverbs 14.12, and then again two chapters later in Proverbs 16.25, that statement, there's a way that looks to be right. It seems to be appropriate. It has the invitation of, a, of propriety. But if you could only see beyond the horizon, it leads to death. It's disastrous. It's pitiable. It's miserable. 
doesn't that alone highlight the integral importance of seeing it the way God sees it? My perception, notice, it appears to be appropriate. It looks to be right, but it isn't. How often have men and women fallen into the trap? They make themselves believe that something's acceptable, that something's approved by God, but it isn't. Let's look at another example. In Jeremiah 17, verse number 9, in the heart of that 17th chapter of Jeremiah, God, in fact, speaking through the prophet, told ancient Israel this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Notice again, that was God talking, not Jeremiah. If it were Jeremiah, that too would have been powerful because he was an inspired man. But God says the heart is deceitful above all things. And that word deceitful means can be corrupted. He's talking about self-deception. Isn't it true that all of us can imagine? Maybe in circumstances it's easy enough to be strongly opposed to something and perhaps use so powerfully the teaching of the Word of God to bolster that viewpoint because God says such a thing is wrong or that such a matter is not to be approved. But how easy it is to change our feelings on that when suddenly it affects me. When it affects my son or my daughter or my dad or my mom, suddenly I justify it. I rationalize my way around it and say, well, maybe it really isn't so bad after all. Notice I'm falling into the trap of self-deception. God's Word hadn't changed in the slightest. But because of my circumstances or those whom I love, maybe I'm willing to change my rationalization. All of us need to recognize the Bible warns us about self-deception. Let's look at the next passage. Isn't it true that the enemy we face is one who is a master at encouraging self-deception? Let's begin in 2 Corinthians 2.11. On that occasion, as Paul addressed that church in Corinth, it was to them that he said, We are not ignorant of his devices. Speaking of the devil, notice he has devices. The devil does not just haphazardly tempt you or me. He has a plan. He knows about your life and he knows about mine. And he's just biding his time, waiting until he can spring the trap of self-deception upon us. We mustn't be ignorant of his devices. Maybe that's only highlighted when we look at another verse in Revelation. In Revelation 12, verse number 9, he, that's the devil, the dragon in that case, he is the deceiver of the whole world. May I again say he is a master at the art of of encouraging self-deception, to configure circumstances or at least to play upon them in such a way that He causes you and I to rationalize, to take what are the plain presentations of the Bible and somehow excuse them, to find loopholes or so we think in them. May I say that He's grinning from ear to ear when He can bring us to do that. He knows He is separating us inch by inch from the truth of God. Because at the day of judgment, we're not going to be judged by what we thought. We'll be judged by what this said. And all the self-evaluation and self-deception in the world won't change one single letter of any one of its words. With that in mind, look at then several examples in the Bible. 
I thought that as we would list these, I think we each can be impressed with what individuals through the ages have allowed themselves to believe. Why don't we start in Deuteronomy 29, 19. There, as Moses, shortly before he died, he warned the children of Israel, and there were some in Israel making this statement. I've tried to summarize it. They recognized they were living in sin. But they said, oh, because of the peace that we enjoy, everything will be all right. Now, how similar does that sound to perhaps a way of life many would consider today? Namely, God's not going to punish wickedness because I'm currently enjoying peace. I've got a job and I've got food on my table and everything seems to be going all right. That must mean that God is looking with favor upon me. May we never believe that. Notice again, there is no peace to those that are wicked. I say that because that's the way the Bible puts it, right? Oh, it may appear that everything's okay with these individuals. They may appear to be prosperous. They may appear to be enjoying the favor of God. But notice, the devil can bring what appears to be good things into the life of others. There's no more powerful statement on that passage than the commentary of Isaiah 57. In verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, we read this when it comes to the peace of life. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. May we allow that to sink into our heart. There is no peace to those who choose to live in rebellion to the things of God. Although it may appear to be so, it isn't. What are some other deceptions that men have often been willing to believe? The second example is this one. God won't punish sin. How often have you or I perhaps heard someone at least think along those lines? God blesses us in such a way that we're able to live for a period of time in this flesh and surely, surely come the day of judgment, He will not force upon someone a sentence whereby they shall be punished eternally for their sin. Many are willing to believe that. May I say that folks today aren't the first ones, though, that tried to believe it. Look at passages like Jeremiah 5, verse 12. Of the ancient era, God through Jeremiah said, Don't you be fooled to believe that even though some have said, God will not punish sin. God through Jeremiah says, Oh, yes, He will. In Romans 2 verse 6, Paul highlighted that truth like this, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Friends, may we then appreciate that though the human family likes to perhaps appreciate deception on these points because it sounds so good. The problem is it isn't true. There is no peace to the wicked. God will punish sin. As you come near the bottom of that slide, I thought I'd list two more. One of them is from the Jews themselves. This one is almost humorous, were it not so serious. In John chapter 8, verse 33, the Jews made this statement to Jesus, We have never been in bondage to any man. Really? You spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. 
tribes went off into Assyrian captivity. In the book of Judges, you in fact were those who submitted to the Philistines. You were captive in Egypt at one time. What are you saying? We've never been in bondage to any man. What did they mean by that? They were self-deceived. They looked only at the moment and were under the impression that by the blessing and goodness of God, they immediately forgot about all those other occasions and times. Look at what self-deception can do. They had been servants to people many times and were just unwilling to admit it. Are there things in your life or mine where we're just unwilling to admit it? Things are the way they are, but we have our eyes covered over with self-deception. We just won't admit what is the actual case. If that is the way it is, how pitiable we are. How sorrowful we are. So much so that why don't we close the slide in Psalm chapter 1. The opening psalm says this, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That psalm begins in verse number 1, again with these words. There's a blessing pronounced upon the man who doesn't run with sin, who doesn't converse with it, who doesn't sit down with it. And therein lies the point I wished for you and I to consider as we close that slide. I noted it in passing earlier, but yet in the Word of God, how easy it is for it to creep into your life and mine. We very strongly feel about certain behaviors or certain attributes or certain things that the Bible so strongly condemns. But then after we associate with it a while, after it afflicts someone that we love or someone that's close to us, suddenly we justify it, we rationalize it, we pretend it isn't so bad. That's what the word, that's what the psalmist is encouraging us never to do. This little statement or part of a poem from Alexander Pope, I've put at the bottom of that slide. It does describe rather well the thought that's currently before us. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien, as to be tated, needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with the face, we first endure, then pity that embrace. The idea is easy enough, isn't it? This person who feels so strongly about something and yet until it affects him or her or someone they love, suddenly now we embrace it. We're willing to accept it. Self-deception is the story. I entitled the lesson again, Evaluation by Jesus. And as we move to the next slide, our goal will be to not only develop this thought more carefully, but then to make application rather clearly to the considerations of your life and mine. And the question must always be, how does Jesus see me? It's not how I see myself, how others see me. It's how does the Lord see me? And so notice at the top several places in the New Testament wherein there were individuals who were deceived. And let's look at the features that led to their deception. 
In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told this parable of the rich fool. There was a man whose crops brought forth so abundantly. And his approach was this, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And did you notice then what he said? I will say to my soul, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Let's pause there to notice. Here was a man who had been so abundantly blessed, but he coveted his own possessions. Materialism got the better of him because God's perspective was this. Tonight thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be? And the Lord called him a fool. Now he thought he was richly blessed and abundantly so, and his viewpoint was only surrounded by those things that were of immediate nature to himself. I'll store up these things for me. And God said, you're a fool. And of course, in the judgment, how do you suppose it would have worked out for a gentleman like that? Notice how materialism had overwhelmed him. What about you and me? Could we be deceived like that? That I rest my consideration upon the possessions, the car, the house, the things that I own. Do I find the meaning in my life wrapped up in those things? If so, I've deceived myself. And that's a guarantee from the Word of God. That kind of matter never ceases to remind us that we as sojourners through this life must understand this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Our treasures laid up in heaven to borrow the words of that famous song we love to sing. But you see, that leads us to another possibility. What about 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3? Here were another group that was self-deceived. and This one was about the end of time. There were some under the impression that peace was characteristic of this. And as long as these peaceful conditions prevailed, God was looking with favor. That isn't so either. You'll notice the example he gave was like a woman who was pregnant. She's about to bring forth and the pains of birth are great upon her. Paul said it's much like that in this case as well. May you and I not then think that just because peaceful conditions prevail, that all is well. God has looked with favor on this country now for well over two centuries. But it does appear so strongly that we've looked Him with negligence and with overlooked neglect. And of course, our society appears to be rottening from the inside out because of it. Notice again, we've got to evaluate not the way we see it, but the way the Lord sees it. Maybe one final example. In Matthew 24, verses 47 and following, Jesus gave another dramatic illustration. A person was going to go away for a long journey, and he left a steward in charge. And the steward began to beat the servants and to embezzle from his master. He began to take advantage of the position that was his. But then it said the master's going to return when he doesn't expect it. And when he does, he's going to do justice to that servant that was so wicked. But notice, the servant was deceived. He didn't think the master was going to find out. He didn't think the master was going to know anything about it. But the master knew everything. And He knows everything about your life and mine too. Let's close that slide then by noting this. There is an unforgettable danger 
attached to this matter of self-deception. It is a passage that rings with such power. It's worthy of our serious thought. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Could I invite your attention to it for just a moment before we use it to springboard into Revelation? In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22 is going to be our central thrust. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. The bottom of that slide are several comments. Although you and I have noted it so often, it surely fits well here. Were there individuals in verse 22 who had been self-deceived? Here was someone who had done many wonderful works in the Lord's name. Here is someone who had prophesied in the Lord's name. Here was someone who in fact had cast out demons in the Lord's name. Did those individuals have the impression that the Lord was pleased with them? Did they have the impression that the Lord was satisfied with their approaches to life? The verse indicates that that, that that was their feeling because notice how surprised and shocked they were. Notice, we've cast out demons in your name and you're not happy with us? They were deceived. Here were individuals who in fact had prophesied in the Lord's name and yet the Lord was displeased with what they had taught. They were deceived. How vital, how essential it is then that we evaluate by the Lord's evaluation scheme and not by our own. No wonder as you close that slide. The discernment that is demanded of us from the Word of God is a discernment that now we shall see embodied carefully in Revelation chapter 3. Would you turn with me to that chapter and listen as I read from chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. While you're turning to that, let me make a few introductory statements. The book of Revelation, as we learned this past Wednesday night, is a book that, of course, has so much pertinent and vital material for you and I to utilize, to encourage us to be faithful. And yet, the book was written to seven churches of Asia. One of them was the church at Laodicea. The seventh and final one that he specifically addressed in these three chapters that open the book, And in verse 14, to that congregation he said, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesight that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
the comments that you'll notice on this slide is an encouragement to all of us using the example of the Laodiceans not to be self-deceived. And why don't we begin our journey like this? First, who was the one giving this encouragement? It was Jesus. He is the faithful and true witness. Here is the absolute evaluation of God. Note what's next though, verse number 14. Inasmuch as He is the faithful and true witness, it says, I know your works. Now you may have deceived yourself into believing something that's really just a lie, but I know the truth. And I know what you really are doing and I know what you're really like. May every one of us feel the weight of that sentence on us. God knows you and me. He knows whether we're really serving Him or not or only putting on a show. Let's add to that something else. You'll notice he rather dramatically says in verse number 15, You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. Now let's face it, the Lord wants them to be hot. But he says at the very least, I wish you were either cold or hot. Where do you stand this morning? And me as well. Are you hot for the Lord? Are you on fire for the service of God? Or is religion just a spectacle, a show, a presentation for the purpose maybe of making others or you feel better about yourself? Laodicea had a serious problem. They were lukewarm. Neither cold nor hot. Lukewarm. And you'll notice the Lord's reaction was, verse 16, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. You make me sick. Imagine throwing up. You make me sick, Laodicea. I wish you were cold or hot, but you're straddling right down the fence of the middle. You aren't committed enough for me to be a faithful servant of mine, but you're not completely in the world either. And so you're too worldly to do any good for the church, but perhaps you have too much association with the church to be friends with all the most worldly people that you'd like to be. Now that warning given to that church reminds us, as you can see at the bottom, the Lord elaborates thankfully and He helps us understand it too. Verse 17, let me read part of that again and emphasize something if I mind. Because thou sayest, whose evaluation was this? They had one impression, the Lord had a very different one. They had deceived themselves. They were under one way of thinking. Notice what they thought. They thought, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. So the Laodiceans felt they were self-sufficient. They felt as if they could take care of themselves and they didn't need the Lord. I say that in part because of what you'll notice on that slide. History records the fact that there was an earthquake that had taken place in the area of Laodicea some years prior to the writing of the book of Revelation. And this people, the people who lived in that city, were of such independence that even when Nero offered assistance to rebuild the city, they refused it. They wanted to do it themselves. And there's certainly a degree to which that has a commendation spirit in it, but when you feel that way religiously, you're headed to hell. Didn't Jesus say, without me, ye can do nothing? John 15, 5. 
Here was a people then who they didn't even think they needed the Lord. We're rich. Our economy's good. Everything seems well. The livelihood is noteworthy. We've got lots of good. Sounds like the rich man again of Luke chapter 12, didn't it? Not only that, look at what else they said. Verse 17, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But did you notice that verse ends by saying, and knowest not. They thought they were rich. They thought they were good. They thought that in the sight of God all was fine. But there are five adjectives that close verse 17. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How different was the Lord's evaluation? They thought one thing. The Lord thought what appears to be the exact opposite. Let's develop some of those last ones with quickness. First of all, though you don't think so, Laodicea, you are wretched. That word wretched in the original language means to be pitiable. Isn't that amazing? These people who felt that they had everything, and quite frankly, the Lord said, you're to be pitied. It makes a great deal of difference how the Lord evaluates, doesn't it? Look at the next one. Not only were they wretched, they were miserable. Now, if you had asked them that, do you think they would have agreed? Oh, they were having a fine time with all the excitement of the perhaps the society, the great financial means of the city, and yet they were miserable. Now, clearly, it was a miserable from a perspective of spirituality and miserable from the standpoint of what ultimately made any true difference. What about the third one? Not only were they wretched and not only were they miserable, though they didn't think so, they were poor. Now, don't you know that they would have absolutely recoiled in disbelief? How can you say we're poor? We've got everything. Business is booming. The economy's good. Lots of food on my table. But yet the Lord said, believe me, you are poor. May I ask today, are you spiritually rich or are you spiritually poor? Obviously, we need to evaluate the way the Lord does it. I can deceive myself. One of the ways you can ask yourself at least with direct answer about that is what are your feelings and considerations about the services at 5.30 tonight? What about 7 o'clock Wednesday night? Have you already made plans to be here? Here is where we learn how to evaluate the way the Lord does. I can't learn how to evaluate the way the Lord does at home. I need His Word, for His Word is what develops in us an appreciation of what truly is right and wrong. That poorness and that poverty leads us to the next one. And maybe this one is the most shocking of all. They were blind. Now again, they wouldn't have thought so. In their estimation, everything was in order. Their viewpoint was keen. Their appreciation was proper. But the Lord said, you are blind. Notice their spiritual discernment was all off balance. What they elevated as important wasn't important. What they chose to overlook was the most important of all. That can happen to you and me. We can be warped. We can be turned around in our sense of values, 
No wonder we're admonished in the Word of God. Ever make sure that we look into the perfect law of liberty. As I mentioned a moment ago, times like those worship services and Bible studies is when we look into this book. It is the perfect law of liberty. We really couldn't care less about esteeming ourselves. And we do not want to be self-deceived. And thus, I need to know exactly what God says. The church in Laodicea needed a very stern change, didn't they? They were miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. How much greater could his description have been? They were spiritually naked. All of us know how shameful that sounds, to be naked. And yet, notice what the remedy was. The next verse, verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Where do you find the answer to all these conditions? you got to get them from me, the Lord said. Man doesn't have it. He never has and he never will. The gospel of Jesus Christ answers all those needful matters in life, and the Laodiceans needed it. Have you ever wondered what would it have been like to assemble on a Sunday morning with the church of the Laodiceans? I strongly suspect the Sunday morning came, they would have assembled and gathered. Maybe you would have heard a, not a lot of nice conversation as you entered through the doorway. Maybe they met in someone's house. Maybe with the richness they had, they had a rented hall in the middle of the city. I don't know. Fact is, you may easily have been able to overlook a lot of what was happening because the Lord said, though you don't know it, you're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. What a great lesson on self-deception. Here was a church, here were individuals who didn't appreciate that the Lord saw them very differently than the way they saw themselves. Let's close that slide and close the lesson like this. How does God see me? And how does He see you? I'm not going to be your judge at judgment and you won't be mine. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the judge and what's most important is asking, how does He see me? What does He say in His Word that's going to be the matter for judgment? Is my life in compliance with what He says? If it isn't, don't let yourself be self-deceived into rationalizing it. It isn't right if He says it's not right and it doesn't matter what anybody else says about it. Well, that being said, repentance is what the church in Laodicea needed. That's what he told them in the next verse. He says, I rebuke those who I love. The Lord loves every one of us, and he tells me, stepping on my toes, what I need to change. And may I in wisdom never be deceived to the point of neglecting what he says. Today, if you are a person that's never become a Christian... You've reached an age of knowing wrong from right, but you've never been washed in the wonderful waters of baptism to wash your sins away. If that's so, then you're still in your sin. For the one and only way the Bible ever discusses removal of sin, of an alien sinner, is in baptism. Galatians 3 verses 26 and 27 describe it like this, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you haven't been baptized and you haven't put on Christ, it doesn't matter what someone may have told you. And it doesn't matter how earnestly they may have felt it. They lied to you. Might we say, 
once you become a Christian by submitting to those initial acts. Walk faithfully till death. Always putting the kingdom first, Matthew 6.33. Always turning your life in service as a good steward to Him, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2. If you have faltered and failed by the way, and you have behaved in a way that's brought reproach on yourself and on the church and on the Lord that loves you, you do need to come back to your first love. Jesus hasn't given up on you, but He's waiting for you to make the next step, the next decision. And He admonishes you to make it at once. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and if there is a child of God that's walked away from the faith, the Lord wants you back. He died on the cross to have you back. And He wants one day to take you to heaven, but He does leave that decision to you. If we could pray to God on your behalf as you repent and confess those sins in a public way, we'd be honored to do it. Today, self-evaluation is eternally dangerous. Don't rest on the judgment that you have. Always let it be the Word of God, the evaluation by Jesus. And if we could be of help today in any public way in these ways, let us do it while together we stand and while we sing.